your style and how you do things of leadership because the old way of leading is no longer relevant. Introducing Carl Moore. Gal has interviewed 1,000 CEOs and other senior leaders such as Justin Trudeau, president of Shopify and NFL Super Bowl winners. His CEO interviews have been published in print and online by The Globe and Mail, The New York Times and Forbes. So I interviewed a guy, General Martin Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Obama. Carl has taught executive leadership at Harvard, Stanford, Oxford and Insight. With over 10 written books, Carl knows what it takes to be a leader in today's world. I'm talking about Gen Z's, you guys, and young millennials, and just saying how you manage them is going to be different than the older millennials or the Xers. So to be an effective leader, I got to be quiet and listen and not. Before we let the stories of the past shape your future, it would mean the world to me if you could follow us or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us. Enjoy the conversation. So typically the first question we like to ask, and I've noticed that you like to ask it as well when you do your CEO series, is give us your initial context. What do we need to understand about your early beginnings to understand the person sitting in front of us today? Well, I grew up in Toronto, and my dad, um, it was a different generation than you guys. He had a grade four education, was a janitor. So grew up in a very lower income family. It doesn't get much lower than that. And um, had a great opportunity Learned a lot, but it took probably 20 to 30, probably until I was about 30 to kind of get over the, the lower class uh, background you have and the kind of being a bit intimidated. But I think getting a couple degrees, uh, going to Harvard, things like that, and then teaching at Oxford really kind of, well, wait a minute, I was highly respected. And so you kind of get a more sense of confidence that when you're from a lower, lower class background, you often lack but, you know, at this point, it's now ancient history and you move on from there. But it was, you know, great parents, great neighborhood, great people. But it took a while to get used to the bigger leagues, if you would. What was that difference you mentioned there that it took you a bit of time to get over the lower income background? What do you exactly mean by that? Well, something where you're not used to dealing with executives or leaders because, you know, you don't run into them in your neighborhood remotely. I remember I had dinner with one of my students um, with his parents, and uh, his mom and dad were billionaires. There was a, a guest from France with his wife. He's a billionaire. And so this young man growing up, where they'd have billionaires at lunch, you get you relax. You can talk to anybody. You're not intimidated. But I'd never met a billionaire in my life. I didn't. I wasn't until even a millionaire back then was a big deal, where you felt intimidated by it. And so you felt a sense of everybody's your superior, and and economically they were in some senses. But then you come to realize that uh, everybody puts their pants on the same way or their skirt on the same way. And they're all human beings with uh, imperfections and considerable strengths. Yeah, I I can relate to that so much. Even even this year, I had the chance to meet meet billionaires, very similar situation to you. And you kind of put them on on this pedestal and you you think they're this be all and, and end all. But then as you start talking to them and you start getting comfortable over dinner, you realize that, you know, they're exactly, they're, they put on the pants all the same way, right? So. Yeah, and they have strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, on the other, I had two billionaires come with our, on our trip to West Africa, McGill alumni, and um, they'd made it the old-fashioned way. Well, there's something about inheriting it and being given it to you and not messing it up as opposed to going out and earning it. 
but it's something where you get used to that milieu and um, you get over it. But it takes a while for people who come from that background, typically. Uh, and it makes you more sensitive to people that are of different races may face or women in some contexts and so on. So you're aware that, hey, um, EDI is an important topic, um, equity, diversity, um, these days is something we're thinking about and to my mind i've added you should argue social class you should add that to the list of things that it's invisible but impacts your life carl i'm wondering what about the different societal classes brings to the table like how what does a billionaire bring compared to someone who may be in poverty well, a billionaire brings a lot of money on a very practical level. And someone who's born to poverty, and we see that, I mean, I was poor, but not wasn't poverty. Where I'm on the board of Welcome Hall Mission here in Montreal, which serves a couple thousand meals a week. And we did it at Thanksgiving, a Canadian Thanksgiving. We had the Alouettes, the football team there, a bunch of the players, the coaches came down. And it's a great thing to do. But you realize that these men that they were feeding have very hard lives extreme challenges and a lot of them have mental health issues have various things they're wrestling with and they're there for understandable reasons you know compared to the alouettes who are giant men of them you know giant men they're great athletes they're relatively well paid so something where i think it's it's in your mind and your head how you look at yourself is, is something you have to do but it's also you have mentors and and coaches and people that help you see yourself differently than you may have in terms of the way you grew up so you can, you can, as our, as our family, you know, went away from it, but it took a while and it took education and people helping you to see yourself in a different way than you had in the past. You see it all the time in, in Hollywood, people get caught up in wealth and they forget to ground themselves. I don't know if you've almost had that realization. And if you can, if you have an insight into how do successful CEOs or just successful people in general how the ones that you've seen that are grounded have you noticed anything that they do is it whether going to these nonprofits and helping out in the community how do these people stay grounded because you know in hollywood i mean you see it all the time people get caught up in wealth and um in soccer recently there's been a lot of incidents in europe where um, young athletes have been accused of sexual charges and it's been happening more and more and so i'm wondering if you've noticed anything that helps these type this type of success to ground themselves well, CEO of a bigger company, where they've kind of made it up through the pyramid, where they started off at the bottom and worked their way up, they tend to be in their 40s or 50s or 60s. So they, and they've experienced having bosses and, uh, you know, uh, working for success. So it's different than if you, you know, won the lottery and became an NFL player, you know, where you're making millions a year, but you're 21. Yeah. It's more challenging. And you're the hero of everyone. And it's a very different. We have a guy come to class. Who, to our CEO class who uh, won a Super Bowl ring uh, with the Kansas City Chiefs. And he's a doctor, a medical doctor. And he stepped away to be um, a medical doctor, a resident during the COVID crisis. And he's grounded, but he's a medical doctor. And he's, but he's also this giant man with a Super Bowl ring that everybody in Montreal knows who he is. And yeah. so that's a different thing than a CEO of a big company where they've spent years getting there. And they realize that they have um, other people that could have been CEO and were in the frame as well. 
So a bit of humility kicks in that, hey, there's other people out there that are very talented. And some people just had the good sense not to become CEO because at the top of a big company takes enormous amount of energy. And you may neglect your family a bit in order to be that level of success. So I think a bit of humility is, is a natural sort of thing because you know there's other people out there that are as good as you. And when you're CEO, everybody at the table knows something more than you do. So your chief marketing officer, they know marketing. Even if you were the CMO before, as CEO, you lose touch with that. The CFO knows more than you do. So everybody knows something that you don't. And your job is not to know more than them, but to judge who's the right person, person to listen to, to take conflicting arguments and decide which is the way forward and a different set of roles. So I think CEO is a big company. There's a natural kind of at times, humility baked into the nature of the role at their better moments. But then you've ran into some arrogant jerks as well who uh, don't seem to get the message. That, it was interesting. I'll, I'll touch back on that. Just a quick side story. It was funny because two years ago, I was biking down in Montreal and actually caught Laurent Tardif Duvernay just uh, speaking with, uh, with, I think it was uh, one of his friends at, at the time. And um, so quick side note story there. Uh, big guy, great guy as well. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, you mentioned humility there. It's so interesting because I had this talk with my boss where we were talking about narcissists and startup CEOs and how 13% of startup CEOs are narcissists and sometimes it's even more depending. And um, you mentioned like successful CEOs have this um, humility quality. Do you think that's innate or is that something that they learn over, over time? I think they learn it over time. Now, if you start out at the beginning and you're a total jerk and everybody hates you, you won't rise to the top. So they have a sense of, you know, some social skills and I think humility sets in. Now, startups, one of the questions I ask is, can you go from being a corporate type? I was with IBM for 11 years to be an entrepreneur. And there are examples of doing it. But a number of our students are entrepreneurs almost from birth. And when you talk to some successful entrepreneurs, it's like I was hardwired. Dax Da Silva came to West Africa with the, uh, about 3,000 people, is now executive chairman, but he started it in his apartment in Montreal, you know, like 15, 20 years ago. And there's something about the heart of a entrepreneur is that they won't take no, is that uh, they don't listen to um, bad news too much. They don't pay attention to that, but they keep pressing on. Now, some of those people that do that fail because they don't have the right product at the right time and so on. But there's a different feeling to, a, to an entrepreneur. It's a harder life they have. And they've got to have a sense of confidence because they, if they listen to their critics, they'd roll over and play dead. Like, you know, they just give up. So there, there's something which um, a, a startup, successful entrepreneur and startup guy or woman, it's kind of a different world they live in. They have to have a certain tough mentality. But if you grow like Dax did to 3,000 people, you know, you get away from that. And you realize that, boy, there's a lot of other people that make us successful. It's no longer just me. And you come to a different place. But not everyone gets to that. Carl, so I was thinking about leaders. And I thought of an analogy where it's kind of like market power, market forces, where if there's a certain field that lacks a particular leader, someone will eventually step up and fill the gap. And that person will be the successful leader in that field. And they'll change qualities depending on what others want. Do you think that's an accurate statement? Well, I think in bigger companies, 
you learn as you go along. And also that you go from your say mid-20s to your 30s to your 40s, the world's changed. So in my latest book, Generation Y, I'm talking about Gen Zs, you guys, and young millennials, and just saying how you manage them is going to be different than the older millennials or the Xers. So the world moves on. And you've got to move your style and how you do things of leadership because the old way of leading is no longer relevant. So I interviewed a guy, General Martin Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Obama. And I talked with him at Duke. Then I interviewed him in his office in the Pentagon as the most senior general in the world. And one of the things he said that which particularly struck me, and I, and I talk about it in my book, is general fights, generals fight the battles of their youth. That is, he was a pup lieutenant out of West Point during the Cold War, and he had a tank. So he learned leadership in his 20s from leading men and women in a tank. He was taught about leadership, you know, from colonels and majors who had been pup lieutenants during Vietnam War. And he said, during the Vietnam War, small men in black pajamas jumped out of the jungle, shot you, and disappeared into tunnels. Cold War is a different thing. And he became a general in Desert Storm. And he said the lessons about leadership and strategy that he learned from the colonels and majors who had been in Vietnam, he'd been in the Cold War, were not entirely but largely irrelevant for Desert Storm. So as you go up the chain, you get older, the world changes. And, and I would argue today we're in a more turbulent world than one, 20 years ago even, let alone when I was your age. So in a turbulent world, you've got to be more flexible. So you've got to change your leadership style to be with the times. or Otherwise, you're just dated. You're yesterday's person. And that's a, you guys don't have that challenge because if you're young. I have to wrestle with not to be yesterday's person. And anyone over 40, probably 35 these days, has got to rethink how they lead and the approach they take. I think because of your studies, it would be interesting if you could walk us through how leadership has changed over the years from a general perspective. Well, a few like, things. Your career, how, did general, how did leaders look and how does it look like now? Well, in my book, Generation Y, which came out about six months ago, I talk about how people over 45 to degree were taught a modern worldview. People mm -hmm. under 35 to degree, you guys, were taught a postmodern worldview. And then I talk about, we have a postmodern worldview because it's post, after Martin, but the modern worldview failed in many significant ways. So some of the ways that we now look at the world differently is that who has truth is no longer just the people at the top. But truth, I mean, there's less truth of the capital T, you know, so there's less truth than there used to be. But also, who has truth has evolved where you guys have truth in a way that 20, 30 years ago we didn't recognize. And it was probably wasn't as ironically true back then. Well, I've got to listen to you more in the, than in the past as a leader in order to be having today's strategies. So it's more of an emergent strategy than a deliberate strategy, if you would. And... 25% of the time, I'm reverse mentored by undergrads. Well, I have a couple of mentors in their 80s. They're great people, but it would not occur to them to ask my advice. But when I write an article, I send it to five or six young alumni to say, am I saying anything inappropriate? Am I saying something that may offend people by today's standards? So I, I want to make sure that, and are the, the, do the ideas make sense? So I'm reverse mentored and taught. So I'm taking the students to uh, Morocco and Cairo. We went to Ghana and the Cote d'Ivoire earlier this year. And I have two undergrads. And I say to them, we have three votes. You guys can outvote me. 
Now, if McGill has a rule that everybody needs travel insurance, we just salute and we get travel insurance because it's uh, you know required and that's a good thing to do. Yeah. But other things, they can outvote me. So that I'm listening to them as I want, and they went on the trip the year before, so they understand the concept. But I want their input to make it of today's world, not of how we first did it 16, 17 years ago. Because the students have evolved. They're different today than they were back then to some degree. So it's a matter of, uh, as a leader, I think you're going to have to be less hierarchical, more aware that other people have truth and insights that you should listen to. And there's a sense of we appreciate diversity in a way we didn't in the past. And, and partly is that it used to be largely white men in charge 30, 40 years ago, where we have a lot more women. Obviously, we have people of color. Um, there's people who are non-gendered. Uh, there's different things and different ways of looking at people. So I think taking on board that idea of diversity is a very important and helpful one, too, that we got to think about today. And it wasn't true 20 years ago. It should have been, but it wasn't. Did that somehow shape your classrooms as well? Were you less likely to listen to your students in the beginning? And now it seems you have this way more open mind in terms of accepting your students' feedback. I'm wondering if that's something that even changed in the classrooms and not only your classroom, but also your colleagues. Well, I don't go to other people's classes that often. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's something where, like, what I do is if we have an idea, they can ask questions and comment. But I often say, okay, in groups of three, discuss what are your key takeaways from the lecture? And then I, I get them to give, and they learn from each other. I said, oh, I hadn't th and sometimes I go, I hadn't thought of that. That's a very good point. But they're talking to two other undergraduates for 10 minutes so that they're sharing and learning from each other rather than just from the person at the front, the sage on the stage, as we, we call them sometimes, yeah. where we're learning from. Uh, and when I do it, I gave a talk on my book, Generation Y, a bunch of executives in Toronto last week. And at a certain point, you turn it over to them at their table groups to discuss. So they're learning from each other, not just from one person. So you have multiple sources of knowledge, truth, and insight, not just the one person in the classroom at the front. Fascinating. I think reflecting at the end of class is something really useful, especially if you're debriefing with peers who may have a different perspective at looking at certain topics. Um, and... I come to realize that the Myers-Briggs test only has two letters for how you get your energy. There's the an I for introvert and there's the an E for extrovert. But in one of your books, you mentioned A for ambivert. So should we change the Myers-Briggs test and how, how can we be better at ambiverts? Well, something where the book's coming out next year, but I've written a bunch of articles from it. So uh, the Myers-Briggs is great, and millions of people do it every year. I've done it multiple times. It's been surpassed by the big five to some degree in terms of the scientific community, and the validity of the big five is more accepted. But the Myers-Briggs is still widely used. So what an ambivert is someone who acts like an extrovert at times and introvert at other times. So the title of my book, uh, our book, I'm writing it with one of my uh, former undergrads who just uh, graduated six months ago, is We're All Ambiverts Now, is a working title, saying that if you're a senior leader, you've got to act like an extrovert at times and introvert at other times to be effective. Now, when I first discovered the word, I was excited. So about 20 executives in a row, Brandon, I said, are you... Uh, 
an introvert, ambivert, expert, and they go, what's an ambivert? I explained in every single one, 20 in a row said, I'm an ambivert, which is statistically impossible. And so what I realized is that after talking to hundreds of people, hundreds of executives, about 40% of, it's a bell curve. So 40% are about genuine introverts, 40% are genuine extroverts, and about 20% are actually ambiverts. But most, what executives, you know, you're more introverted or extroverted, and it's a bell curve. So I'm an extreme extrovert, but most people are a little extroverted, a little introverted. It's not, you know, that dramatic. So you got to be true to yourself, Brandon, but act like an introvert at times as an extreme extrovert because it's the right thing to do as a leader. So Claude Majot, um, I first started, um, I read a, a book called Quiet by Susan Cain, got to work with Susan and got to know her and end of some articles with her. So I wrote a Forbes blog about it and it got over 66,000 views, a hundred times normal, like unbelievable. And I wrote with one of my undergrads and we were phoning each other every couple hours going, there's another 10,000. We were so excited about it. So the next night in class, my CEO class, we had two CEOs. One was a guy named Claude Mongeau, McGill MBA, who uh, ran CN, about 24,000 people then. And I said, Claude, are you an introvert extra? He said, I'm a huge introvert. But when I was COO, the board was thinking of making me CEO. And what they did was that they got me an extrovert coach. And he said, five times a day, press a clicker like a bouncer has in a bar. Now, you guys wouldn't be familiar with that, but, you know, some of your listeners would. And so, like, you know, you go to a bar, there's a bouncer and collects how many people come in. And he gave an example. He had to get in the elevator in the morning for the six floors at the, the Le Gaucheter here in Montreal at CN headquarters. Yeah. And instead of ignoring you guys, looking at their feet and saving money, they go, good morning, Brandon. <clears throat> good morning, Brandon. So I recognize your name and I say it. I go something like, hey, nice day out there. And you're not going to argue with the CEO about that. And go, Brandon, you killed it last week in your presentation to the board. Really appreciate your hard work. You get off the elevator because that's what a good CEO does. But if I ignore you, you go, he hates me. My career's in trouble. I'm sending my resume to CP in Calgary, which is an overreaction. But we want a CEO and a leader to act a certain way and to know our names and be friendly and be concerned for us. So... He, as an introvert, had to learn to act like an extrovert. And myself, as an extrovert, there's a guy named David Benson who runs Aldo, big uh, shoe company headquartered here in Montreal. And he's giant. Like, he's 6'6", 280 pounds. He's not overweight. He's just giant. Yeah. He's the son of Aldo. He's CEO. So he goes to a meeting to talk strategy, and, he, and as an extrovert, he says what he's thinking. Everybody goes, that's why you're the boss. I love it. Well, what he wants, he already knows what's in his head. He wants to go and say, Adam, what are you thinking our strategy should be? And you say something. And I go, Brandon. Then I go, Susan. We go around the room at the end. Happy thought. I'm CEO. I get to decide the strategy. But when I say the strategy, you guys see your ideas taken on board. So to be an effective leader, I got to be quiet and listen and not spill my ideas like an extrovert is apt to do. So what I'm arguing, you've got to act like the other, but be true to yourself and don't as an extrovert if i act like an introvert too long it just exhausts me so when i'm I'm here in my office writing a book on introverts ironically and after a couple hours i can't take it anymore do you hear the pain in my voice yes yes we do i just can't handle it so i go but right out there 
there's the lounge for undergrads, and there's a bunch of people I'm teaching, and they, I, you know, they want a nice grade, so they're nice to me. But they go extrovert break, and they tease me, but I fill up my energy by being with them, come back, and I can be by myself again for a while. So you've got to recognize your hardwiring. And the, other, and the final thought here is that if you, there's a famous saying, if you have a hammer, everything's a nail. So I have a hammer. It's called the introvert, ambivert, extrovert. So it's the lens I look through the world. And I, I say to people when I teach this, I'm too excited about it. So when I think about Adam, I would say that he's also a UBC student. He's probably in his 20s etc etc he's from montreal and there's a bunch of things that go oh adam's much more complex than just an introvert or extrovert so when we think about people it's a nice lens to look at adam and brandon look at you but i've got to go there's so much more to people don't just look through one lens but take that lens off and put another set of lenses on to really get to know you guys fair enough yeah and, and that's what even with our team, what we did at, at Quoting Life, we have a team of about eight people. I decided to make a table of everyone's Myers-Briggs tests and kind of compile their weaknesses and strengths. But I think it's always important to not forget not to confine people within these metrics and not say this is who you are, right? And that it's always free to change. Something you mentioned there is, and you kept on mentioning throughout this conversation, is the importance of listening. But listening is often, you know, a vague word and everyone knows that it's important to listen. But in your eyes, what does listening truly mean? I'm curious. Well, something where uh, clever people like you tend to, and I, I listen to you, and as I'm listening, I'm thinking of some clever retort. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of some funny line that will get everybody amused and go, oh, Carl's so clever. Where that's not good listening. When I listen to you, Adam, I should let you f grind to a halt, like you have nothing else to say. And then what I might do in a, a serious conversation, say, Adam, you've made three points about our forward strategy. This, this, and this. Did I get them right? And you go, well, no, actually, there's a fourth you missed. So that I've got what you've said. You've agreed that's what you said. And then I can then respond to what you had to say. So I think listening and really letting people get their full say without interrupting them and leaving your mind open and then making sure you understood them before you move to your back and forth, I think is the signs of an excellent listener that we should take on board as leaders. Yeah. Carl, as a tradition on our podcast, we'd like to get your thoughts on a quote left by the previous guest. And the quote for you is coming from a Gen Y person helping others build businesses. And the quote goes, are you doing the right things? for the wrong reasons. That's a very interesting quote. I think it's, it's better to do the right things for the wrong reasons than to do the wrong things. But you want to do the right things for the right reasons, I would agree with them because people can probably sense why you're doing it. If it's you know a, an ongoing conversation or it takes some time with a relationship, and they'll see that you're coming from the wrong place. And they may not trust you in the same way. So yeah, I would agree with that view and I think that it does make sense. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you so much, Carl.